If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey everybody, it's time for another monthly top 10. As I recently mentioned, starting in 2020, I am putting every one of my top 10s moving forward. I do one a month on the podcast channel for folks who don't want to watch me count to 10. You can listen to me count to 10. And so in January, there was the top 10, or it was actually the top 25 most anticipated games for the coming year. And then February, I had my top 10 favorite games of the previous decade. The March top 10 is very special. It's my top 10 most important or influential games of the previous decade, which is very, very different. I am not necessarily my favorite games, but the ones I think had the most impact on the industry and all that. The thing that makes this top 10 special is I am not alone. Jen and I were down at Dice Tower West, the convention in Las Vegas, and while we were there, I did a hour-and-a-half-long panel with Tom Vassell, the grand poobah of Dice Tower, and the panel was him and me dueling, effectively, dueling top 10s. Me saying what I thought was most important about the last 10 years, him saying what he was most important, and really just kind of picking holes in each other's arguments. And uh, we had a great time, and Tom has graciously allowed me to put the entire panel here on the Rado Talks Through podcast. So thank you very much for that, Tom. And before we get to the actual... um. The battle royale between us. Please remember, folks, it may sound at times like we're getting a little testy with each other or we really hate each other's guts. Couldn't be further from the truth. We were both having a great time. We agreed before we started recording, before we got up on stage, that we should just, you know, go at each other, you know, full barrels. And, uh, I know a lot of people might be a bit concerned that Rado and Tom really hate each other, but we both really like each other. We respect each other. We don't always agree, but we were just having fun playing it up for the live audience because there were hundreds, it was a packed room, hundreds of people in there. Everybody had a great time. And in fact, after the top 10 is over, if you keep listening, there's going to be, I think, another half an hour or so of questions and answers that Tom and I did. So, again... Thank you, Tom, for uh, having Jen and I at the convention. We had a great time. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And thanks for uh, letting me put this on the show so that you podcast listeners can hear my and Tom's top 10 most influential games of the previous decade. And let's get going with that. Although, before we start, I should point out, if you'd rather watch this than listen to it so you can see the priceless look that we sometimes give each other, you can check out the link in the show notes. That'll take you directly to the Dice Tower YouTube channel, right to the video of this. But if you are happy just listening, then sit back and relax and uh, get ready for the fireworks. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Friday Night Dice Tower West 2020. (laughs) 
All right, we're going to get going here. First of all, I'd like to introduce our guest, who is going to be our guest probably in the future, Richard Orado Ham. So was that an invite? Yes. That an, all right, well, there you go. You hear that, honey pie? So from Rado Runs. Now, last year, he did a top 10 things Tom was wrong about. Yeah. <laughs> You're still smarting, I'm sure. We were, I was going to do a reverse of that this year, but we don't have the time. <laughs> That's not what he said originally. He just couldn't find anything. I'm just that good. Um, actually, since we're at the end of a decade, despite, I don't want to get into all that, what a decade is. Oh, God, no. No, no. No, I agree with him on yeah, this Yeah, that's one, one thing we agree on. Because the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter. I might do this from 95, you know, 2025 to 2035, just to mess Tom, with people's minds. a decade ended just this second. I know. <laughs> so, anyway, that's the last time you hear us agree tonight. <laughs> now, we're uh, going to talk about the top ten influential games. And I thought that might be an interesting topic. I don't know how much of the same things that we have, you know. It's interesting because I think most of the most influential games, like Catan and Ticket to Ride and Dungeons and Dragons, they came out before the last decade. So, um, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, no, no. I'm just. So we're gonna do this. We're gonna also do it in chronological order rather than importance because it's really hard to kind of pin the importance on these because I think they're important for different reasons. Yeah, definitely. And I get what you're saying, too, about prior to 2010. I mean, Magic the Gathering is hard to follow up for anybody, as an example. Magic, Dungeons & Dragons, and Catan are the holy trinity of this. I, those three changed board gaming for good. Yeah, I would say we're more in an in a age of evolution rather than revolution. But that's still exciting. I still love seeing how core ideas evolve. And they stand on the shoulder of the masters who have come before. And that's what all this is. So we're going to see what happens there. I don't know. You know we're just, so we're just going to go back and forth and going chronological. So we will likely, I assume, we'll have crossover. You want to guess how many? Four. Four. Hmm. Right, you'll, you'll do it. Definitely do that It should one. be ten because you're, I just assume and, you're going to get six wrong. So. I'll go for three. No way. We'll cross over more than All that. All right. All right, go ahead. Start. All right. Well, like I said, chronological, so we're starting in the year 2010, and I believe this will be our first crossover, Seven Wonders. Nope. Whoa! Whoa! Hello! Okay. I, I thought this was going to be, wow, this is how it's going to go. All right. Well, I mean, maybe we have to get some audience participation at the end, because yes, of course, Seven Wonders is a hugely influential game. I, granted, it is not the game that introduced card drafting. Uh, you know, obviously, Stefan Feld hit it a few years earlier with Notre Dame, and there were other games besides. But this is the game that came out of nowhere um, and introduced this to a broad market and uh, really... In the 10 years since, how many games owe their success to, uh, you know, to the groundwork that had been laid by Seven Wonders? Card drafting is such a ubiquitous uh, system now. I mean, this is kind of like Kalos for, for um, worker placement. Not the first game to do worker placement, but the one that really put it on the map. And uh, Seven Wonders, I, I, I'm shocked. I am now here, uh, shocked and a bit appalled, quite it frankly. The, it was in the... <laughs> It was in the top 20 for me, but okay. the reason I didn't put it in is that it's a hugely popular, but I, this isn't necessarily about popular games. This, sure. There's going to be popular ones on here. 
Um, I don't think drafting, while it's one of my favorite mechanisms, it's not nearly as widespread as many other mechanisms. Oh. It's starting to happen. Somebody give me a laptop. I need to search BGG right now. It's not used as much as you might think. And if I said that there's a game that made drafting popular, I thought Sushi Go might be just as much of a push in that direction. Sushi Go I did seriously consider. It was on my short list. um, But at the end of the day, I I couldn't include it and Seven Wonders, so I had to give the nod. Plus, now here's where you are going to mock me, and I imagine a lot of these people will too. I have never and would never. (laughs) (laughs) Perish the thought. Uh, There is another element that is more near and dear to my heart with Seven Wonders. The fact that it was originally a three-to-seven player game, and at literally the last second they threw in a two-player mode. Garbage two-player mode. I believe the free city is by far the best way to play the game, easily. And it also lays the groundwork for the kind of evolution we would be seeing in the future with uh, Otama play, solo play. Uh, I think a lot of developers have taken inspiration from that. Ah, that's a stretch. Mm. You're attributing the rise of solo play to Seven Wonders. I am saying it helped. No, 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 no. No, I am saying it helped lay the foundation. It was a popular game. A lot of people loved it. It opened a lot of eyes. It opened a lot of doors. I agree. I think that Seven Wonders had such a terrible two-player version (laughs) that they made Seven Wonders Duel, and people were like, oh, that's how the two-player version of it should be. So on that, I agree. All right, smart guy. Then what do you have? (laughs) All right. This may actually be on your list, too, uh, because it's also from 2010. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other games from 2010? You'll find out shortly. All right. Well, this one, if I was putting them in order from 1 to 10, it might be 1. Wow. I think it's that important. And that's Alien Frontiers. Mm. One word, Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, Alien Frontiers is a good game for many other reasons, and it's amazing to look back at it, and what did it raise, 35000 Something like that. It was surprising. It came out of nowhere. I, I, nobody expected anything like that, and it did definitely set a trend. It helped, it helped kickstart, um, you know, the entire platform for us. Yeah, I don't know if there's a game, and maybe we, I'd have to go back and look at the history, like a game that suddenly made Kickstarter huge, right? And when Alien Frontiers came out, I thought, oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah. I, I hope to see more board games use it. And then a few years later, you and other people said Kickstarter is going to be huge. And I said, eh, <laughs> we'll wait and see. Eh, I can't deny it. I mean, it's definitely oh, yeah. the most driving force in our industry right now, other than the Internet itself. You know, Kickstarter is a big deal. And Alien Frontiers. And, you know, it's kind of funny because the guys who did Alien Frontiers now run Daily Magic Games. Mm-hmm. Really small company. You know, they make... Vogue, Kingdoms of Valeria and stuff like that. But if you see them, shake their hand, because they changed the industry. Unless you hate Kickstarter. Yep. Um, then just still shake their hand. You know, it's not their fault. They didn't invent stretch goals, okay? Uh, yeah. Ooh, wow, why didn't I search for that? Whoever invented that, stretch goals there you should be go. slapped. Yeah. Uh, this one was so close to my list. You did put it on your Kickstarter I did not guy. put it on my list for reasons that will become clear in a few minutes. Um, Long story short, yes, a hugely important, uh, monumental moment in the industry. Honestly, there's another game that I thought was more important in kind of the same milieu. And if it wasn't Alien Frontiers, it would have been something else. Uh, there were plenty of other games that were coming out right at the same time. Okay. I didn't back it. I backed Glory to Rome. Glory to Rome was also a big hit around the same time. As Glory to Rome, Black Box is yeah. in our library. No one's playing it. I went to all that trouble to get one. <laughs> Play it. Everyone's like, oh, I love it. Then play it. On that, I can definitely agree. Jen will teach you how. 
<laughs> I'm sure she's pleased about that. <laughs> All right, what's your next one? All right, well, I'm going to jump forward to the year 2012. So you didn't have to wait very long. Um, because for me, the more important milestone in the Kickstarter saga of board games is Zombie Side. I will accept that because yeah. th- I, th- I think that's a pretty strong exactly. contender. Exactly. Okay, we need to discuss. I mean, it's obvious. Um, everybody it. knows it, it. It. Yeah, Alien Frontiers set the table. Zombie Side is what delivered the meal, and it has defined success. I mean, the first one, I think, I think it's the first that did over a million. Uh, it's the one that has determined now we should always be putting lots of little plastic guys. Uh, you know, and, and it, it, it was yeah, that has basically set the overall momentum. I think there are a lot of games like Alien Frontiers, but Zombie Side came out of nowhere and was even more shocking. So I just couldn't put them both on the list. No, I agree. And in fact, Zombie Side, beyond that, is a good one for the list because it definitely launched Guillotine, which mm. helped it eventually turned it into, or at least was bought by. Come on, Simon. Come on, you're not. Uh, whatever you're called these yeah. days. You know, that company itself and the miniatures explosion, like you mentioned, yeah. not just that miniatures existed, but have you gone back and looked at plastic miniatures before Zombie Side? <laughs> it's really sad. Yeah. You're like, wow, I thought these were really cool. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> you know, and so whether you love or hate miniatures, yeah, that definitely is the case. Yep. And it also was the first, I'd argue, it was one of the first that started the expansionitis there was zombies. yes there was a million things to get for it the promos uh, for better or for worse yeah there's more zombie side promos than games came out that year yeah yeah that's the thing it defines kickstarter success now and really nothing else has eclipsed it in terms of influence in that sphere so that's number two on my list from 2012 zombie i'm going side. back to 2011 oh okay this is not on your list because you're going to put a different game in your list for ah. the same reasons it's going to be the same uh english equivalent here because i said Machikoro, I mean, uh, not Machikoro, um, I said uh, Alien Frontiers, and then was the one that started, yes. and you said Zombie Side made it big. Yeah. So now we're talking about Legacy, and I'm going to say Risk Legacy, and you'll talk about a different game in a bit. <laughs> Don't even lie. <laughs> All right. Now, Risk Legacy came out of nowhere, <laughs> um, and Risk Legacy did a lot of things. It started Legacy Games in general, which you may say, well, there's not that many of them, and that's correct. There's probably 20 or less Legacy Games, but it's more than that. There's campaign games and things are not, were not really that big of a thing until this came out. And this also helped jumpstart the name of Rob Davio, who people did not know a ton sure. at this point in time. And it showed people that if you buy a game from the mass market, it's not always bad, because this is where that was sold. It also blew my mind the first time I opened a box and found Delete It in it. Um, <laughs> I think the statutes of limitations have passed. You can probably talk about it now. It's probably Actually, I had okay. a guy tell me today, he said he goes around to Legacy Games, and he said, you're going to find this in the game. And I said, you know that that's actually in Risk Legacy. <laughs> the thing he said, and um, he didn't know that. Ah, uh, yeah. He yeah. was accidentally spoiling stuff. <laughs> yep. I seriously considered that one. It was on my list for a long time. But honestly, coming up with 10 was very hard for me. I had an easy 30 I could have sat up and talked about, and I just had to make some tough cuts. Well, next, next year we'll do 30. All right. <laughs> no one will come. <laughs> well, do you have anything else for 2012, or I'm moving on to 2013? Uh, oh. No, we're just going to do them back and forth, because I'm going to be in oh, 20, okay. 2012 for a long time. Oh, <laughs> exciting. Yep. All right. Well, then, I am going to move on. I'm not going to live in the past like you. There's so many more exciting things in our future. Uh, my first of two games I want to talk about in 2013 is Hanabi. 
No. No, 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 no. Well, first of all, I am cheating because it did officially come out in 2010 uh, in some weird little limited way, and then it got a bigger uh, release in 2012. But in 2013, it won, was it the Spiel or the Kenner? I forget. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it does, because one, right off the bat, that means it's a huge monster hit. And no, it doesn't. There's a lot of games in that won that award in our library that no one touches. Um, there's more to the industry than your library. Villa, no, who here played Villa Palanti today? Who played Villa Palanti today? Yeah. You did? One. <laughs> does anyone remember when that won the Spiel des Jahres? Yeah, because it's not that good. The fact that actually well, somebody raised their hand, I think, works against your argument, <laughs> quite frankly. Good job, sir. Library. My hat's off to you. But anyway, um, yeah, aside off. from the fact that it was a monster hit, award winner, everybody was playing it. I know you personally went on record many times saying it's not even a game, as I recall. No, that's or the... no, or was it the mind you said that about? No, that's Sam, but... Yeah, but anyway, to me, I do think it is an important milestone in the um, evolution of board game design because it is a cooperative game where you have imperfect communication between players. And that's a very important evolution because cooperative games, by their very nature, can be a bit static. They lack a certain zest because really the only way they can surprise you is just giving you a deck of random cards to draw. Hanabi says, no, you know what? That surprise can come from your teammates because we can't, you and I, sit and strategize out every little thing that we're about to do and then just see the plan come together. That's why so many people are turned off by cooperative games because they are really exercised in mathing efficiency. That's impossible with Hanabi. Your teammates, who cannot just say exactly what they want you to do, can only give you oblique clues, and then you have to intuit. And that makes you work in a much more uh, integrated way with your teammates. And it's the beginning, but we have seen tons of games since then. I mean, it's become a very common subset of what is, I think, the fastest-growing um, genre of co- uh, co-op games. All these games, um, you know, Mysterium... The fastest-growing genre is co-op games? Uh, is it? That's, played, oh, that's a question. Have you to, played a Rowan Wright lately? I'll be talking about them very soon. Actually, I'm going to highly disagree on this one. Okay. Now, despite whatever I think of Hanabi, it doesn't matter. Um, the game itself was very popular for sure. Yes. There's maybe one game that copied it. I think the imperfect communication between people was already existing thanks to things like Shadows Over Camelot and Battlestar Galactica. Um, I don't. Think I no, that's a that's a very different thing. A I agree. Semi cooperative or trader Hanabi, game is different than a cooperative game. I think Kanabi was fine. I just don't think it had a lot of impact on the industry as a whole. I don't think so. Again, we'd have to go to Board Game Geek, but I'd be able to show you every year, year upon year, we are seeing more games that are all about imperfect communication coming up with new and different ways to do it. I, I don't have it later on the we list, are, but I really not... wanted to put Mysterium on as an example. Mysterium draws a line. Is, is Hanabi meets Dixit as an example. And that's so if you put popular. Dixit, I'd be, well, that's 2000. But, uh, yeah, I got you. Okay, but I see, would I have Dixit if I could. Dixit was a bigger thing, and I think, anyway, I didn't even yeah. consider this because it's wrong. No. Um, <laughs> let's go back to 2012. All righty. All right. Uh, 2012 is still, in my opinion, at this point in time, of the last decade, the most important year. So many amazing games came out that year. Not, again, that, that necessarily my favorites, but games that changed the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think clearly Lords of Waterdeep is on that list. Now, Lords of Waterdeep doesn't get played as much today, but hands down, it brought so many people into the board game hobby from role-playing. They're like, hey, a Dungeons & Dragons board game. And when I first heard about it, I heard Dungeons & Dragons worker placement, and I, I rolled my eyes. You know, whatever. 
And I played it, it was really good. I enjoyed it, but lots of people played that and said, wow, this is what board games are like, and got into the hobby that way. That game is still in print today. People still talk about it today. And I, I don't know if there's anyone here who got into the hobby that way, but I mean, I can't tell you how many people I talked to who said, yeah, Lords of Wordeep was one of my yeah. first games. A gateway game that bridged role-playing games and brought them into the hobby. Yeah, I completely agree. That's another one on my very shortest of short lists. It was, shortest of yeah. short It was tough that was to say no 40. to that. And, I mean, and you say it brought people. I know for a fact it brings people in the game because at the time it came out, I was still in the video game industry working full-time, and it was a great gateway for me to turn my fellow video game addicts um, you know, who love fantasy, who love, you know, Neverwinter Nights and a million other, you know, fantasy role-playing games. And, well, hey, let's play this over lunch. And, like, and you're right. It, that becomes the beginning of an obsession. Uh, it's a great gateway. And there were plenty of other gateways prior to it. But sure. you're, when you're talking about Catan and Carcassonne and Ticket to Ride, none of those have the literal sex appeal of, you know, going out and fighting dragons and whatnot. So, I mean, I think that's actually a really important element, too. <laughs> I don't think you used the word literal there, right? <laughs> and if you are... <laughs> okay. I'm taking this back off my list. All right, what do you have next? Okay, well, I'm going to move on to 2013 again. Um, and uh, my next one is a game that actually might be on your list now I think about it because it did come out in 2012. But in 2013, it got the Spiel nomination, uh, which is something that really elevated it. I should probably just say what it is, though, rather than tell a story leading up to it. I'm going to talk about Quix. Yeah, no. Yes, 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 yes. I have actually, because this one, I mean, obviously, as far as I'm concerned, this is not the first Roll and Write game. It's not. It is not, by it's far. Yahtzee. Um, oh, yes. Uh, yes, but... If you go back, I, well, I actually, this is the one I researched the most because I wasn't clear about this one, and actually several people who I talked to recommended it because I, I wanted to try and eyeball and find exactly when did this explosion really start. It didn't start in the 50s with Yahtzee. Um, it started with Quix because if you look at the, you can go to Board Game Geek, you can search by uh, every year how many games came out in this genre. In the years leading up to Quicks, we were getting two or three or four every year. Right. Uh, after it got nominated, it doubled. The year after that, it doubled again. Quicks got two standalone expansions. It was the game that everybody was playing. It was a monster hit, in large part, again, because of that Spiel nomination. Uh, and it's, not a monster it's hit. after that that you see, I mean, it, it is patient zero for our modern obsession with roll and rights. And if you want, we can go outside, and I've got the data to prove it. <laughs> now we got physical threats. <laughs> I'm not talking about ten digits. Well, I didn't step mean that outside. data. <laughs> I don't know. I thought about this too, right? I thought yeah. about rolling right, and I couldn't pin it to a single game. I, I needed help to do it, quite frankly, and so I actually talked to uh, people who were really into this genre, and and they told me it was quick. So I'm like, no, it couldn't be, really. I mean, um, you know, I was expecting more, you know, Welcome to and, you know, the, the cooler, more sexy new ones. But no, you go back and you will actually look. That is Patient Zero. That's when it exploded. Because um, it was a such a monster quicks. hit. And everybody realized they're pretty quick and easy to make. Well, speaking of quick and easy, my next one is also from 2012. Although I don't, I'm trying to remember if it was big in 2012 or not. But that is Love Letter. Mm. All right, so Love Letter did two things. One, for, but did, did the audience just groan? <laughs> No, oh, they, no, they, they, were, that was, that was a, okay. they were literally... Anyway, never mind. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, Love Letter, for that, 
caused a very brief boom in micro games. Mm -hmm. Now that's died down to a yes. manageable. There's still micro games being made, button shy games, and other people make them, and it's great. For a while, everyone tried to make Love Letter. It was part of a shared universe, which fell apart almost instantly. <laughs> um, and then it, they made 6,000 versions of it. But Love Letter did two things. One, it made the micro games. Two, it made people realize that there were games that came from Japan, and not just Japan, but all of Asia in a yeah. whole. And, you know, the 90s were the year that European games came, German games specifically. The next decade was, you know, France and Italy and all those other countries. And then America came into its own. And then this year, I thought, was when we saw Japanese games start coming in. I agree with everything you just said there. Again, on my short list, here's why I kept it off the list. Because, again, I had to get it down to 10. And you said it yourself. Uh, micro games were kind of a bubble. They were, they were huge for a couple of years. And I don't think they've in any significant way changed the direction of the industry. They have not. I mean, everybody chased after that dragon for a little bit. But people kind of moved on, except with a few exceptions, Button Shy. And that's why I just couldn't put it on sure, this but list. Because I, I don't think it has long-lasting ripples. The Rolling Wright's going to be a bubble, too. You watch. Three or four years, <laughs> they're done. I'm telling you that right now. It's already lasted three times as long as whatever bubble it might have been. That's and true, but that's time mostly will because of Games. He keeps publishing like 80 of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, Is he I, here? Because that's oh, not any fun if I'm not mocking. All right. All right. It's just not the same if he's not I in the know, room, right? They're, they're still pretty boring. <laughs> You'll just have to direct more to me. That was my pick? Okay, it's your pick. Right, yeah. It was a good pick, though. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just going to keep on moving forward to 2014. Yeah, I'm, st I'm still in 2012. <laughs> I'm excited. Um, this is an expansion, actually. Viticulture Tuscany. Okay. Uh, um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that was in there. And I'm certainly not going to talk about Jamie's attempt to make it a legacy game, because that was <laughs> the less said about that, the better, I believe. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'm actually kind of responsible for that, though, as it turns out. I well, then I thought it was a stupid idea. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Jamie... Where did you get that idea? Yeah. So there were a lot of cool things in there, and you could actually point to it as one of these games. Not the first game that you know, just gives you such a huge volume of, of modules to throw in, but they, I, I didn't really give it for that. It's one specific module. It is the Otama module. I'm coming back to the fact that Tuscany is certainly not the first board game, certainly not the first Euro game, that included a really deep, well-thought-out solo mode, but it is the one that named it. And giving something a name has power. Um, and it is post that. Now, Otama, or Automa, depending on how you pronounce it, which is actually the worst part of it. Uh, nobody knows how to say it for sure. I pronounce uh, it no. <laughs> <laughs> you, I imagine you will agree that the um, solo gaming is on the rise. No, 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 and I agree, but yeah. I would argue that it was the Race for the Galaxy expansion. Really? But that had the robotic things in it. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, this was not the first one. I am pointing this one out specifically because, again, I, I thought the rise of solo game was important. I did want to try and find what's the game that really turned the corner. And I think it's this. And in large part, well, one, it's because it was done by Morton. And Morton is Mr. Otama now. He runs an entire, the Otama factory uh, that puts it in all of Jamie's uh, subsequent games and several other games as well. So he's pushing I must pushing be out of it. Forward. I don't understand anything you just said. <laughs> Who's Morton? Uh, uh, Morton, oh, Peterson, I believe? Uh, thank you. Yeah, Morton Peterson is the designer developer of the Otama system. And he which runs now, a factory. Uh, it is his company is called Otama Factory. Developers hire him to make solo versions of their games. Okay. Yeah, and, well, he, and this is where he got his start. And, but again, it's a dumb little thing, but... I mean, I shouldn't say that because I'm just giving you ammunition, but... I'm not giving, arguing. Giving something a name 
uh, is, I think, really, really important. If it's a name that sticks, that everybody uses, Otama is now synonymous with solo gaming. Everybody wants to know, what's the Otama in this particular game if it's sports solo, and this is where it started. This is where it was created, and that's why Viticulture Tuscany, Viticulture itself is a lovely worker placement game, had some neat ideas in it too, the big worker, the small worker, but Tuscany, I think, is a very, very important milestone in the evolution of our industry. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't think Autonoma is actually that used that much. I see lots of games are like they have soul rules. They don't use that word in them. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty. Do, do they? Okay, I accept it. Yes. Uh, on. You are my people. <laughs> Twenty twelve. <laughs> I'm staying in this year because it's good. All right. So I look outside the bigger picture rather than just people playing by themselves, but with others. Oh. You people need to shut him down. I'm calling for a boycott now. That, that you are out of step with the future, sir. The future is people playing by themselves? The past and the future. Have you ever played a video game? Those are all playing by yourself, bud. I don't know you want to go down that route. Okay, anyway. I did make them for 20 years, so I kind of do, but that's okay. Oh. Oh. So, okay. So 2012. Listen, 2012. A good year. I, I, I think about the industry as a whole, and I like seeing things kept in business. And so a lot of stores are in business solely because of Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. But in the last decade, many stores also had a humongous boost in sales thanks to X-Wing Miniatures game. Mm-hmm. Straight up, it was a big deal. It brought a lot more people in the hobby, uh, people who liked Star Wars when it was yeah. popular. Um, <laughs> hey, man, I'm just telling the truth here. Uh-huh. Uh, so X-Wing was huge. You... People don't realize, I think, how much X-Wing sold. Oh, it's it, it ridiculous. Was by far, Fantasy Flight's highest selling thing, to the point where I think it may be twice as much as the second highest. You know, it was a really big seller for them. It made their company huge back then. Um, and it was everywhere. It was in Target. It was all over the place. Yeah. It was something that people would play, and it let you fly spaceships around and shoot each other. It made a miniature game popular. Yeah. Very few miniature games really break outside the miniature crowd itself. And then it kept a lot of stores in business. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought about that one. And, you know, I mean, as you're talking about it, I, I have to liken it. It's like this generation's Magical Gathering in terms of its overall impact. And like I said, just keeping stores alive, keeping yeah. the industry afloat. Um, and, and that's all true and well. I would definitely say it has a big impact from a business perspective. But unlike Magic the Gathering, which had a huge business impact and a design impact because it launched an entire style of game that everybody tried to copy and is, you know, the genesis of what we still play today from Fantasy Flight. Uh, X-Wing gave us Attack Wing, gave us the Dragon Wing, and nobody... It, 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 didn't, it didn't, like, um, you know, create a renaissance of tactical miniature uh, vehicle skirmish games. I don't and that's why I that. kept it off. I don't disagree on that, but yeah. I, I didn't say it had to be design yeah. powerful. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm not saying it's as good as Magic, Yeah, important as Magic, but I thought it was important for 2012. Yeah. And I agree. From a business perspective, that's a good call. But as a former designer myself, I tend to focus more on the design impact than the Oh, are we talking impact. about former designers? All right. Oh, yeah. Back, okay, yeah, yeah. Back when I designed Fishes, <laughs> Fishes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Next I'm on still, my list. I'm still in Fishes, Fishes, actually, as it happens. <laughs> <laughs> No one, no. <laughs> no, no. Don't even give me some false hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that was me. No, that, no, that wasn't me. Oh. Okay, yeah, so I'm moving on to 2015. Yeah. And this is one I was thinking we would have some overlap on. I'll be surprised, but you've surprised me already, so keep okay. it going. Uh, let's talk about time stories. We'll see. 
<laughs> okay. That's, that, that's promising. All right, all right. No, I'll just say it. Yes, it is on my list. Okay, there we go. Hooray! Is this our first overlap? Yes. Yes, I but think I I'm going to win. I think it might be for different reasons. Let's see if we... Well, okay. Um, you know, there are, are a lot of things you can talk about. I love the time loop system. I love um, you know, pushing narrative, uh, melding with gameplay mechanisms. But I think the most important thing about this game and you know, how it feeds into what comes after is it sets the, the standard for, you know what, folks? It's okay to buy something that you're only going to play once. And then it's going to move on. Uh, you know, I mean, when it first came out, there was so much pushback. What? I'm going to buy this, and I'm only going to play it once? No, this is ridiculous. I have to be able to play every board game a thousand times, or else I'm wasting my money. Um, cut to a few years later, and now everybody's cool with buying uh, escape rooms. Everybody's cool with um, well, what ultimately happened to Time Stories is a whole another topic. But I do think it introduced the idea and made people comfortable with the idea that, yeah, you don't have to get 100 plays out of a game to make it a worthwhile investment. And we see that now in more and more games as we move forward. Uh, you know, with the escape rooms, with the adventure game rooms, or the adventure games that are narrative-driven, that are basically, um, you know, uh, choose-your-own-adventure-style board games. All that traces back to the huge success of Time Stories. And it made it okay for publishers to try. Sure, I, I don't... Disagree. I was thinking more specifically that Time Stories was essentially the first escape room game. Yes. Um, escape rooms, which are very popular and do really well. Um, for those of us who loved Time Stories back when it was fun, um, <laughs> eh, that, that, when you play that first module, the very best part of it was solving that puzzle. Yeah. And you solved that puzzle, and it was just an amazing moment. And I said, wow. And then people said, hey, here's a game that only does those puzzles. <laughs> and you were like, what? That's great. Yeah. And that really, but Time Stories made that possible. Yes, it's almost a sad story to see how Time Stories has, you know, progressed, but we got to give it credit for what it did in All 2015. Right. All right. Very exciting. All right. What well, back got? to you, because that was the same thing. I did 20, I did the two, so. Okay. Otherwise, are, 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 are you out of 2012 finally? No, I okay. just jumped ahead because it's time stories. I came okay. ahead. Hello. <laughs> I'm Very the past, nice. And I'll go back. <laughs> uh, Bob's going to have some words with you, I'm afraid. I hate Bob, and I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> Spoilers, by the way. Sorry, folks. Yikes. Okay, we well, don't then. even know what happened to him. It's a terrible ending. Don't. Don't get me started. We, we could probably do a whole hour just on time stories, quite frankly. Yeah, probably. Maybe next year. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to go on to 2016. All right. Uh, this is another one. I, I, I'm moderately confident it might have made your list. I got nothing from 2016. I'm, I have absolutely no confidence in your ability to be discerning <laughs> whatsoever. Um, I'm really surprised you didn't put Mansion to Madness second edition. Because I had a hard time deciding which was the game that did that. Yeah. Uh, yes, and obviously we're talking about digital app integration. Um, it's certainly not the first. Uh, I don't think you can necessarily give it to Eric Lang either with XCOM. There have been other games besides that. I mean, there was an old version of Scotland Yard that Ravensburger did years and years and years ago. But all of those games were pretty much met with resounding, I refuse, thuds. The important thing about Magic the Ma or Madness and Madness is it's a second edition. So pl uh, players who are like, oh, you know, th these really suck. I want to go back to the first... No, I don't want to go back to the first edition. This second edition is so much better. It yes. was proof. It was evidence that was undeniable that digital apps can improve the quality of the game because you could do an A-B comparison. And that's why I had to give the, uh, the app integration into our hobby to Match and Magic second edition. No, that's good. I... I'll take it. 
Alchemists. No, I had thought about this one, right? Yeah. Alchemist, I think, was one of the first yes. ones that, that did a decent But Alchemist job of it. tries to have their cake and eat it too because it's not required. You can have somebody be miserable for three hours and be a human computer sitting at the table. <laughs> Matches of Madness said no. Uh, you know, because Matches of Madness has the app take over the role of somebody who's stuck trying to put together all those crazy puzzles and keep everything, and that's, that was not the greatest job in the world. So I, I got to give it. Um, even though, and this is crazy, I infinitely prefer the first edition. Oh, yeah. Um, cool. You just invalidated everything you just said. <laughs> that's okay. But I still recognize the second you edition. You really like the first better? Oh, my gosh, yes. A, a big part of that is nostalgia, though. I played with a lot of my work buddies, and we had such a blast. And th while the app could do amazing things in that game, it couldn't do what I could do when I was running the game for them. And, you know, more custom mold. I realize how great... He's a great designer, the best, better than a computer. I'll take that. <laughs> All right, let's go back to 2012. <laughs> 2012 was an important year. Right, I, already, I already alluded to this a little bit with Love Letter, but even more so than Love Letter, Machi Koro. Mm -hmm. And Machi Koro, which has now been kind of forgotten in time because of Space Base, but Machi Koro, what Machi Koro did is it started a furor of people going and hunting down these games in Asia. Yeah. So I remember when I first got Machi Koro, I got a box of games from well, you, you were back from Asia by now, right? I mean, I'm sorry, you have more of an insight I, into the Asia-America America connection. Yeah. Yes, I was in Korea in like 2010, and that was Okay, it. all right, okay. But when I, I got a box of games from Japan brand, I played Machi Koro, and I said, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but I had gotten all these little games, and they were weird games. There was a game shaped like a toilet. There was all kinds <laughs> of weird games that came in, and. It was like, eh. And Machi Koro said, wow, this, is, this, is a, this could be a big game. And it was. All right? Machi Koro was a pretty giant game. And when this happened, suddenly publishers started looking at Essen and yeah. they started looking over at Asia and heading to Japan specifically. But then after Japan, Korea was right on the tail of that, um, along with Taiwan. And then we did in recent years, we've seen Indonesia and other countries coming up. And really now... They're, when uh, it's really funny, you should see when Japan brand comes to Essen. Yeah, oh like my God, it's insane. Publishers just like hiding in the bushes, like, all right, go get them, and then you run over, you know, <laughs> I'll print your game. You don't even know what it's about. I'll do it, you know, and that's a big deal because I also think it's important to see this kind of design, because yes, board games are a cross-cultural design type thing, but countries tend to bring their own things, you know. For America brought war games, for better or for worse. That was the thing they were really good at and did all that. Germany brought these ideas of family and victory points. Japan brought this idea of the smaller, interesting, weird quirkiness to this. And these are all kind of combining now to make just the great games that we play now. And that's why I think Machiko was good. You could also argue it helped launch Pandasaurus to where they are now. Um, but I, I, was, I was a little weary, wor worried about that because there's so many games I could have picked that launched the company. Yeah. That came out over this past decade. You know, I had looked at, for example, King of Tokyo launched Yellow and, you know, different games like that. But I think Machi Koro stands there. And now I'm out of 2012. Hooray! Oh, really? Because I've got some other 2012s on my also-ran. I was kind of curious if you're just going to stay for the rest. But we can talk about that later. Yeah, we'll do that at the end. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So, although, I'm going to quiz you on that a little bit, because you, you, you pulled the Asian connection, you know, or the, opening the eyes to what, for Love Letter and Machi Koro. But I think you're really giving that mostly to Machi Koro, right? Yeah, I love what I was talking more about the micro games and just small games in general, yeah. that because 
we started kind of going real big with zombie side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's also still yeah. the pulling back and saying, hey, small games are good. You can even call a small game epic, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Try to poke. <laughs> we're, back, we're back to 2016. And now this is the one I know you're going to read me the riot for. Uh, you are going to mock me mercilessly. So just get revved up. Are you ready? You get the, your I've been ready juices. for like All right, many, yeah, many for, for a year, definitely. Okay, it's another expansion. It's Oh My Goods, Longsdale and Revolt. <laughs> okay. Right, okay, yes. Obviously, you know Oh My Goods has nothing to do with the game. That's a nice little engine building game. Alexander Fister, sure. one of his early games and all that. Alexander Fister put out Oh My Goods. Neat little, almost a micro game, almost. Mm-hmm. But his first expansion for it introduced a bunch of new cards, a bunch of new characters, and it didn't just say, hey, open up the box, put all these cards in, shuffle and play. It brought them to you in a storyline campaign. Okay. And this is the first, I mean, while it's not the first game that has a storyline campaign, I do believe this is where we can trace back to, you know, what we see last year with Maracaibo or what we see with Shy Pluto. Um, we're seeing more and more Euro-style games bring narrative in, which has traditionally only been the purview of a Marathrash-style game. trash, I'd give okay. up. Okay, thank you. Yes. All right. Uh, it's, it's always been... You know, the Ameritrash side. Oh, we have all these really great dramatic stories and uh, drives you through, and you're going to be playing the game for months or years to see it all the way through. And we Euro uh, dry, dusty economic fans, we have to sit on the sideline. Well, we'll just move our chips around, and that's about it. But uh, Longsdale and Revolt says, no, no, we can actually have stories, too. We can have characters who um, you know, go on adventures, and when you're complete with them, they get added to your deck, and they become a resource you can use in Euro-style gaming. And year on year, we are seeing more and more games do it. First of all, it's just been Alexander Pfister. This has been kind of a mission of his ever since he came up, because he's doing it in literally every game he puts out. And you know, most recently, Maracaibo last year, which I was really close to putting on this list, because I think Maracaibo is the game where... Uh, but I, ha- I would have had to do it... I would have had to do it fully speculatively because, of course, it would take five years to determine if it would actually would have the impact. But I do think this introduction of story-driven narrative to Eurogaming is incredibly important because human beings want stories. We don't want necessarily just repeated standalone um, sessions that have no overarching narrative that pulls us together. Ever since we were in caves painting on walls, we have been telling each other stories. And... Um, to say that Eurogames shouldn't have stories, they should just be standalone, is like going back to the early 80s and saying, hey, why are there these little cutscenes in Miss Pac-Man? Why? I just want to see the same maze over and over and over again. Miss Pac-Man was an important step. And now, story is so ingrained into video games. And I do believe, given time, it's going to be just as much so in Euro-style games. My particular beat, my jam. And I think everybody, when that happens, because I'm getting speculative here, because I'm... I'm in more recent years, I do believe people have to go back and look and say, yeah, that's where it started, that little tiny expansion. See, I agree with almost everything you said. Except Until? For, no, except for the game. Mm. No, no, I agree that story and game is important, although Maracaibo, um, I've watched everyone down there playing through the campaign and have a lot of fun as they play just a regular game. <laughs> but um, I don't think this expansion is nothing. I mean, it's, I'm sure it was fun and everything. It didn't sell that well. Mm-hmm. I don't think it had a big impact. I haven't heard any designer go, well, that's the thing that showed me. I think right. you're just making it all up. Um, that, it was that, that it was that game. 
Mm-hmm. I think you're reading into it that it was that particular Well, no, I thing. mean, I, when I first played that game, I was absolutely blown away by it. And if you go back and watch my video, I made a big deal of it. This is the future, I said. I know you won't. I know you don't watch the show, and that's okay. I watch the show. I have show. made my peace about? with it. No, I, I have watch made it. my peace with it. I spend a couple of weeks watching each one. <laughs> But no, at the time, I thought it was very, very important special. And I do, I, it, a game doesn't have to be a monster seller to have an impact on the creative yeah, people working in the industry. That's, that's the thing. I don't think it even had an impact. I think that I it think happened. it does. I think, well, like I said, this is an initiative that's largely being pushed by Alexander Pfister, who is one of the hottest Euro designers working today. Every one of his games does this, without exception. Who's doing it, though? Like, Great Western Trail is a good game. We mm-hmm. all agree on that. There's no overarching story in that. Where, I mean, the number of times I've heard you complain about why do developers keep putting these overarching stories, most recently in Shy Pluto, it is happening more and more. And like oh, I, said, I know it's happening. I'm saying that it, you said Chris is doing this. I don't, in what? Maracaibo and this other one. What other ones? It wasn't in Blackout, really. Yes, it was in Blackout. Who, he, but who's playing these? No one is. Normal people who actually buy four or five games no, a year. No, no. Yes, people, yes, yes. I know you said this all the time. This is where I uh, so again, you. you are saying you the say normal um, developer. People, normal people don't buy Hong Kong Blackout. That's the difference. You say that all the time. Like normal people only buy five games a year. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. They yes. buy Space Space. They don't buy Maracaibo. Mm-hmm. The people who buy Maracaibo are gamers right. who buy 30 games a year. Right. So uh, if you want to talk about, I mean, Obviously, I'm talking about Alexander because that's what I'm into. When I say regular people, I mean regular board game geeks. People who do make a game like Maracaibo, which is a monster seller. It's already sold out its second print run. It's doing big, big numbers. Within the, it's, it's not doing a cool, uh, cool many or not numbers, but it's doing big numbers for a dry euro. And I do believe that it is in part, not entirely, because it's a great game anyway, but I do believe narrative-driven gameplay is important. It is an evolution Five years from now, ten years from now, you are not going to be able to buy a Euro game that does not have a campaign. No way. Yes, no way. No way. In ge- and in the exact Watch same video, way. That is not going to happen. That There's is. Going to be we'll come back in ten years. I also. And in ten years, you won't be able to buy a Euro game that does not feature a fully functioning Otama-based solo mode either. Well, that I might agree with you yeah. on, actually. But These are the future, old man. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyhow. I turned 50 uh, last year, by the way, so it's, uh, I'm actually the old man. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one to know. Okay. But anyway, um, no, I just don't see it. I, I, don't get me wrong. I think story in Euro games is a big deal, mm-hmm. and I think we're seeing more of it. Yeah. I don't think it's going to take over. I don't think every Euro game is going to have it. And I would argue, and there's no way we can know without doing a poll, but I would argue almost everybody who plays these plays just the base game and does not go through that story. Well, you'd have to do a poll because I would argue the opposite. I would argue it is the minority of sourpusses like yourself who are like, I don't want all this stuff. Just tell me what boxes to open so I can play. People like having stories. You, People like having a narrative drive. I love story. Mm-hmm. I love the story. But I'm just saying some games don't need the story. Yes, Pac-Man didn't need the story either. But it was an important step when Miss Pac-Man started putting story and that's that. that Miss Pac-Man's cutscenes are the equivalent, the early baby step. And now you can't imagine a video game without story-driven content. Um, yeah, I, I believe. No, I mean there's different kinds of games. Sure, so sure, video sure. games you just play. Yes. You don't care about the story, and other games you play for the story. I will grant you that. I should couch everything with Tell everything I'm talking about here story. is the games I like to play. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> There we agree. Let's there jump back All to right. 2012. No. Oh, we're, shoot. No, no, we're at 2015 now. You had said time stories. 
I have two games from 2015, and this one is a yeah. monster hit. Okay, because I actually yeah, know what that yeah. word means. Uh-huh. All right. And that's code names. Mm, yeah. All right. Hands down, code names was just one of those games that blew the industry away. Yep. There's a very few of those that come out. That one does not come out every year, even. Like, I don't think, well, I was about to say none came out in 2019, but that's not true. But I don't know that any came out. No, one came out in 2018, too. <laughs> but there's at most usually one or two a year. Code Names was bigger than that, to the point where now there's like five versions of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it not only kept CG in business, for <laughs> sure, um, but it also said, hey, party games can be clever. We've already seen that they could be clever with Dixit and stuff, but this was one that just brought word games back into the public yeah. and is extremely popular. And this one is basically on the list solely because it's just that big of a hit, that it's everywhere. People who aren't gamers will possibly have played Code Names. And it's one of the few games to get that big. I agree with everything you said. The reason it's not on my list, because I did consider it, is because of Hanabi. To me, looking at things from a design perspective, Codenames is another example of a cooperative game that is all about imperfect communication. It's not cooperative. Well, it is if you play as a two-player game. Um, but besides, <laughs> you and your team, it is, you and your team are cooperating to try to achieve a goal. It is, it is functionally a cooperative game. But more okay. importantly, it is a game where people on a team working together, cooperating, cannot give full information to each other. I and I that. would go back to Hanabi is the game that put that idea on the map, made it popular, made it exciting, and it is the seed that led not just to Codenames, but to Mysterium and a dozen other games. What about Password, then? If we're going to do that, Password yeah. is much more of an inspiration for Codenames mm-hmm. than Hanabi. Okay. Okay, um, good. You're yeah. done. <laughs> I'll accept that. Right. Passwords, I would say, does not have the same... <sighs> cultural impact is wrong because I, I... Board game cultural impact. Nobody is talking about how passwords is changing the universe. But well, Hanabi old, did. But it... Hanabi is a game that actually opened people's eyes. It made people want that kind of experience. Passwords did not make anybody seek that type of experience out. What are you talking about? It's not big now, mm-hmm. but when Password was big, it was big. Sure. But I'm talking about games that have an impact on the uh, industry in the last 10 years, that have shaped the direction of design, that sure. have led to genres being successful. And I do believe Hanabi predates code names. Uh, is just as uh, impactful in terms of sales, in terms of no. breakthrough. Okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, but they're both big, big sales hits. Oh, you're right. Uh, you're right. Codenames they are both is unassailable. But Codenames, yes. I would guess, is like yeah. 10. Yeah, and like I said, Codenames times. was originally on my list, and I had to take it off because I had to go further back and say, well, where is the actual origin of this? What is the game that actually set our current industry on this design path? It's not Codenames because Codenames uh, owes a lot of its acceptance to Hanabi. Hanabi doesn't owe its acceptance to anybody. Hanabi came out of no, nowhere. Hanabi, Hanabi owes came its out exist- of nowhere. It, no, it owes its existence in many things. It owes it to cooperative games in general. Yes, yes, yes. And card games. And it owes it to Skippo and, and not Skippo, but uh, <laughs> uh, Dutch Blitz, where you're putting cards in mm-hmm. the same piles. Anyway, what's your next yeah. one? Okay. <laughs> All right, okay, so we're moving on to 2017. We only have two left. We've got to sync up somewhere. This is, this is, yeah, this is, this is our last best hope, I think. Do it. Gloomhaven. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes! <laughs> All right. Look what you've done, Isaac Children. You've brought us together. You've bridged the gap wherever you are. I'm curious, though, as to why you think so. 
There's a lot of stuff. Um, I, I, I think the two biggest ones that I identified that are really unique about this game, and again, important in the overall ongoing evolution, one, it, uh, it, it kind of comes back to the Kickstarter element. It is what I nowadays call a kitchen sink game because mm. Isaac threw everything in that box. And more. And more. No publisher would have ever published it like that. They would have said, yes. oh, look, you've given us 20 years' worth of expansions we can release. Um, and I think it's monster success, and not just it, but uh, King of Death Monster as well. But I don't think King of Death Monster, it was a monster hit, but I think it's more limited in its impact. But it's the same kind of thing that now everybody says, well, yeah, where's our kitchen sink game? Where's our game that just throws everything in? Not just miniatures, but 500 hours worth of content guaranteed so that we can show up on day one. I think that's important. The other thing to me is really important is that it is, you know, on the surface, it is an Ameritrash dudes on a map tactical skirmish game, but there's no dice. I mean, there's a randomizer with the deck, but it is Euro to its core. It really feels like a true hybrid game. All the drama, all the spectacle, all the excitement of an Ameritrash game, and all the really super crunchiness. And I think, moving forward, we will see more and more games, not necessarily copy the exact mechanisms of draw to, play, but... Okay, how can we meld that together? How can we make a really great Euro experience? It's super puzzly and still have all that pizzazz and excitement of a, of a very you know, uh, exciting Descent-style game. Well, I'd go back to your first point. That's yeah. why I put it on the list. I think it upended the industry in many ways because a game like Gloomhaven shouldn't be number one on BoardGameGeek, and it shouldn't have sold as many copies as it did, but yeah. it did. And it also bypassed distribution which in the next several years you're going to see is a bigger deal than people think. <laughs> All right, And it sold so many copies to that, again, everybody copied it. I had a major publisher say, Tom, why do you like this game? It shouldn't work. And I was like, it just does, right? It, I don't, it's a hard thing to explain. And it was followed. It beat Seventh Continent to the table. Yeah. It did. It, yeah. But Seventh Continent did the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this happen more and more where these big, giant games are being done by independent small people and they're big, and they're also, to me, this is a big hope for the future, because we were talking about this before we turned the mics on, about, oh, Asmodee is taking over everything, who cares? Because the number one game on Board Game Geek is not an Asmodee game, yeah. right? It's from a small publisher, and there's more of that can happen. The more big people come, the more small independent stuff happens, and I think it's been pretty good for the industry. Yeah, it's why our industry is so exciting. I mean, what other entertainment industry could something like that happen? You know, it's incredible. And I love the game, too, on top of it. It's also just an amazing, amazing game. All right. So, hooray, Gloomhaven. Right, I think we have two year? now. Uh, I'm going crazy and saying 2019. Okay, I am, yeah. too. Shows how good 2018 was. <laughs> <laughs> I just through I, that year. I, I will agree. 2018 was a bit of a thing. That was fine. Yeah, I just, I it didn't have a game. All right, what is it? Wingspan. Yep. Whoa! Yes! <laughs> wow, that's, that's awesome. Let me start this yeah, time. You go, okay? yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think Wingspan's important for two major reasons. Uh, one, it brought a female designer to the limelight like we have not seen for a long time. Right? Um, so the applause is for her, right? That's yeah. the truth. And the second thing is, is it showed us that we can break away from the same old themes. Because on the internet, all the time, you're consistently seeing people writing threads that, this is a stupid theme. I, I don't know why anyone likes this theme. 300,000 copies says otherwise, right? Normal, cool themes that ordinary people like. Like, I could get my parents to play this. I could, you know, show this to somebody who would not want to play Dungeons or Dower Middle Ages games, yeah. okay? I know that people love both of those, and that's fine. 
but lots of people like birds. There's an Audubon bird watching society. My dad made me watch birds when I was a kid. I still am mad about that. Okay? But I know people like it. I read books about it, and I'm, I just like that themes like this are that popular. I'm really pleased about it. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. It's actually drawing uh, parallels to what you talked about earlier with uh, Waterdeep, which is a great gateway for, for fantasy geeks, for video game fanatics. This is a great gateway for, for your mom, for, um, you know, for, for normals, for the muggles out there. Um, well, your mom doesn't like birds now. No, it just sounded like you were saying something else. Like, <laughs> just for uh, your mom. I, I'm, I'm not bringing your mama into it. Don't worry. Um, so I agree with everything you just said there. Obviously, it's such a huge smash hit. I mean, I was shocked when my wife was on Facebook uh, not too long ago and said, is this the Wingspan we played? There's an article about it in Better Homes and Gardens. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. So I agree with all that. That was one reason I put it on that. And that's really kind of more of the business side. But to me, there's also a very important design side to it as well. I mean, at first glance, you might say, oh, it's just a bird game. It's an engine builder. It's pretty straightforward. But here's the thing. I think Jamie was brilliant to package this game and present it and sell it as a gateway game along the lines of a Ticket to Ride or a Carcassonne. But it's not. It is a heavier gamer geek style game. Oh, I agree. And it's a game. And, you know, and if, you, if you look at the second printing, where they really leaned into the fact that, look, because uh, you know, there's like special, hey, don't open the whole deck, just open you know, these decks and let, you, let us take you for the, through the first four or five turns of the game kind of a thing. They have really leaned into the fact that this is a game that anybody can pick up and play, but it doesn't have to be a really super elegant streamed streamlined game like Ticket to Ride. It can be a game that people start playing and say, oh my god, this game just keeps getting deeper and deeper. And I think if other publishers want to follow in Jamie's successful footsteps, and of course they do, they have to, it's not just the fact that it's a fresh theme, because there are other bird games out there that did not catch on like this, Pete Mott's and other ones. Sure. Um, but nobody else that I can think of really pushed, hey, this is, this is a game for everybody, but it's a game that um, you know, hardcore game geeks will come back to and enjoy on a deeper level. And I think that's huge. The, uh, the stealth gateway game, you know, or the stealth gamer geek game that looks like a gateway, I think we're going to see more it's of that. Top 10 list. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big part of its success, too. So that's why it made my list. All right. All well, right. That's, that's it. That's our top 10. Wait a minute. Uh, was, it, was, was, was that three? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I believe that means I own the dice tower now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'll expect those Kickstarter checks in the mail. Oh, I can do that right now. I got like a dollar. There's nothing left, yeah. <laughs> All righty. So well, you, had, you said you had a couple that you wanted to talk well, about. Well, it's interesting. I mean, make a 30 uh, you know, I made a list of 30. I've got the whole thing right here. And all of my almost rans, 2012. 2012 was a very big year. Solid, there yeah. were a few ones that you didn't mention. I'm surprised you didn't mention Mice and Mystics. Because I think Mice game. and Mystics really affected Plat Hat games. Yeah. I'm not sure it affected much else. I think Mice and Mystic leads to what um, um, Ryan Lockett is doing with Above and Below. These narrative books uh, that have Ryan become Lockett. the basis of gameplay. Hmm? I'd have to ask Ryan. That's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. I am. So I, I, I really thought long and hard about that one. I did have Love Lair. I did have Machi Koro. I did have Waterdeep. I did have Sushi Go. Um, I also had Suburbia. Almost. Because, not there's anything super special about it. It's a pretty straightforward Thailand game. Sure. But... Sim City, um, you know, I mean, there there were but other Sim City board games. I know, but it games. didn't take off. I mean, I know Suburbia did okay yeah. or well, but it didn't 
we didn't see like a plethora of city building games. Yes, then. we did. Not because yeah. of suburbia, though. Just no, I do think so, because I think you have to look and say, yeah, suburbia came out. It was a respectable hit. It made people say, oh, this is the game that makes me feel like I'm playing SimCity on my table. There had been other games prior to it, but that, none of those really caught hold. And then you wait a few years, and then more of them start coming out because other developers needed time to try to catch up. So that's why I wanted to give a nod to Suburbia, but I couldn't because I had to come up with 10. And you saw, my 10 was flawless. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let the judge that to someone else. <laughs> yeah. History will be the judge, yes. Yeah, and actually, uh, 2018, uh, I, 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 I really wanted to put down Brass Birmingham. As a, somebody agrees. As, as, a, as another important Kickstarter milestone, I think we're going to see this more and more and more. We are starting to see more and more. Let's go back and get an amazing game that is ugly and make it look like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, and then let's make over a million dollars on Kickstarter. I agree, but I would have picked Android Netrunner. That was the one Ooh, I thought about. interesting. Because oh. it took an old CCG. And gave it a, And yeah. gave it new life. That's a good point. And new everything. Yeah. On that regard, I also considered King of Tokyo. Because I'm surprised. I fully expected to acquiesce and say, yes, it was an important game, even though I hate it. <laughs> Why isn't it on your list? It's a, it's a big deal. Because I like King of Tokyo a lot, but I, I, it just didn't make the top ten. Okay. Um, Terraforming Mars I considered, but it's hard to say what Terraforming Mars has done other than let Bonacore crow about top ten. Other than, other than sell a 10. lot of copies. That's right. what it's done. I mean, done. it has done that, but we haven't seen a ton of copycats yet. Yeah. We might as time goes by. Yeah. It shows that artwork doesn't matter that much. <laughs> oh, and you were right to assume that I was going to call out Pandemic Legacy. You were going to do Risk. I was going to do Pandemic. I thought you were going to do Pandemic Legacy. I didn't. Legacy. And you, you kind of mentioned it. Um, to me, I, I love it. I think it is important, but I don't think it's really made any ripples. We have a half a dozen really impactful ones. We have a bunch of people trying. I honestly think Legacy games are just too hard. I don't think people keep ever... asking us to do a top ten, and like, well, when they get to be ten, really good exactly, ones. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And I, I just think, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it, we, we're never really going to see them take off. They're always going to be a nice little thing that's going on in the background. So I, I just couldn't say it was that. Yeah, but impactful. we're seeing kind of an amalgamation, and you use that weird um, expansion to talk about it. But yeah, in reality, we're seeing campaigns yes. being a big deal, not just in Eurogames, all kinds of games. So I think that can lead back to both pandemic and risk as kind of kickstarting at people like okay maybe not legacy but maybe i could do a campaign yeah, game yeah, yeah. in a sense so yeah. there's like there's like i'm tired of the spoilers with games it's getting really old you know it's not oh i can't talk about this i just did a, a thing where we had to bleep out i was showing pictures of pandemic legacy on a video i was recording and mm -hmm. it spoiled it because some idiot put spoiler pictures on board game geek unless that was you in which case we're glad you came here <laughs> um <laughs> Alrighty, well, that's our top 10 influential games of the decade. I'm sure that if you're watching this in a video later on, you will have major disagreements or agreements. Feel free to post those in the comments, and we'll talk about it there. Uh, but before we run out here, we we're wondering if anyone in the room had any questions regarding this or anything. Here's your chance, and we're going to repeat the question. Tim, where are you going? Sit back down, no, pal. Get, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> um, anybody, uh, we'll repeat the questions yeah. so the camera can hear. Sure, sure, sure. All right. Yes, sir. Okay, so we're asked about Chronicles of Crime, where that one would be. I, I thought about Chronicles of Crime, but if I'm going to give Chronicles of Crime, I would have to go back to Mansion of Madness first. That's exactly right. I, it was one of my first thoughts. I almost immediately dismissed it because of Mansions of Madness. Now, I will say that um, 
Chronicles Crime took some dynamic stuff that we haven't seen before. But time will tell, I think, with that. Yeah, I don't know if QR codes are the future of the industry. <laughs> no, but it is selling extremely well. So totally, we'll totally. With good reason. Yes, sir. Okay, so the question is in regards to games that influence the industry in a way we did not like, yeah. specifically calling out exploiting non-gamers, fans of the oatmeal, exploiting kittens. I was so happy that I was able to go and look it up and saw that Cards Against Humanity came out in 2009, so I did not have to talk about it. You're, you're right, you're right. Because we would have had to put that on the list. Exactly, yeah. Because it definitely has influenced Dobby. I, I can't tell you how many emails I get from people like, you thought Cards Against Humanity was bad? <laughs> oh, you'll love our game. <laughs> like, do you watch this show? Um, here, I'll tell you what, though. So we, Exploding Kittens, we can give it all the garbage we want. You know, good, bad game. It did get people to look at Kickstarter. Mm. And the people who made Exploding Kittens have, hands down, the best booth at conventions. If you've ever been to Gen Con or Essen and seen the Exploding Kittens booth, I... I'm jealous that I didn't think of that idea. They have a booth where you go in and you put in your money and you press the button and they do little skits and it's stupid and people, people line up. <laughs> I'll stand there and watch it for a while. It's extremely entertaining. I may not like the game itself that much. You, I haven't played it. I read the rules. That was the extent of my playing it. I did play the throw-through burrito game. <laughs> but um, that doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me that a game like that does really well. I'm glad that people play games like that. Yeah. I, I, it's a good question and I'm racking my brain. Because, I don't know, I'm a relatively upbeat person, and I'm trying hard to think of something that I really hate about the industry or any direction. Well, I am, I am unhappy. So I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to you then. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> no, I, I mentioned this before. I, I'm, it's weird. I'm glad Kickstarter exists, Alien Frontiers. I'm not happy with a lot of manipulative things that happen on Kickstarter where people are trying to manipulate, buy the game now without much information, or oh, you, you mean never like early bird it. specials, all those kinds early of early bird specials, um, stretch goals that are already ready to go, mm-hmm. but we're hiding them on purpose. And that, so you don't like the carnival huckster nature? Of I, it. I really don't, and that's problematic. I find, but I, I wouldn't know where to pin that on any specific game, yeah. um, or even a specific company, because lots of people do it to the point where we have to do it. When I run my Kickstarter each year. <laughs> I make stretch goals because people just expect them. It's a necessary evil. And and it's frustrating because it's just something people want to happen. And you're like, well, all right, it's it's there. And and people like excitement, right? And I worry, and I keep saying this, I'm worried that we're always talking about the cold of the future. You know, my most watched top ten list each year is the top upcoming games. There are 1,500 games downstairs right now you can play. (laughs) And and people are like, and then some publisher will show up and say, here's a game no one's seen yet. People are like, what? (laughs) You know, it's like, well, what about these other games? But that that is a good question. But I don't know that there's any game I thought hurts the industry that much. Um, I don't know. No. In the art shirt. <laughs> okay, so the question is, what do we think about the recent explosion of IP games that are just fine? And we were just talking about this, me and Z, 
because we're saying, people always ask us, what's the next modern trend in gaming? And after the recent announcements at Toy Fair and such, I was like, it's IP. I mean, I think there was like 50 to 100 of them that have been announced recently. Yeah. And you're right, a lot of them are okay and, or good, you know. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'd rather that than there be bad ones. Yeah, I mean, those are going to appeal. Those are just going to bring more people to the table. And if they come in and they play a game that turns out to be fine, th there's a much better shot that they'll go back to whatever has replaced Toys R Us and get something else. And not only that, I'm getting more jaded as time goes by. I'll get new games in the mail, and I'm like, eh, it's pretty cool and everything. But I was so excited to get Kool-Aid Man for Funkoverse in the mail. <laughs> He's been in my house for two weeks now, and I haven't been able to talk about it. But Kool-Aid Man is in Funkoverse, and I love that. Okay? I am so excited. That's the greatest thing ever. So you... That's my number 11. Yeah. I hate to say it, you've literally drunk the Kool-Aid. Don't let us end on that. Please, somebody ask a question. In the back, yes, sir. Okay, so the question is, to clarify, we're asking what is the game that pushed publishers to make games better production-wise? Well, it's a ladder for sure, but... Side? Um, yeah. Um, Max uh, Minions doesn't count. No. It's a billion-dollar company making a um, game. No, I'm serious. They yeah. could do whatever they want. They, I don't think they even made money on that game. That's not a fair thing. I don't think that even pushed the industry. I will tell you my choice for it, because it was on my list from 2014, Splendor. Splendor is a nice enough little engine building game. I firmly believe uh, it, uh, it owes all success to those wonderful poker chips and just playing with them. Oh, I do and, that. And, and that, and I, again, I think from the perspective of the publishing industry, oh my gosh, look how well this did because they really splurged. They didn't have to. Those could have been little cardboard punch-out shits. And in any other game, they would have been. And Splendor would not have been the game that it turned out to be. And I think after that, well, let's get Azul. Let's get a bunch of other ones. But let's also apply that to big games as well, let's, which culminates now in Wingspan. I, I think Splendor, I, I could probably make a case for that, I think. It might be Days of Wonder 2, though. Uh, that's a good idea. But Days of Wonder didn't incur... Uh, nobody else was chasing after them. Days of Wonder was all by themselves for years. I agree. So I don't know what the... I mean, because now every game needs to look like Days of Wonder. Yeah. I don't know what it was. I still think... I may not be side either. I don't know. That's a good question. I'd have to go back and look at the timeline here. Let's go back to 2012. <laughs> um, but it wasn't in 2012. It was after 2012. Actually, Alien Frontiers had some pretty cool production, and people are like, wow, Kickstarter lets you make a game look nicer. So it could have been Arcadia Quest. It could have been, you know, all kinds of, you know, it's, anyway. It's, it's probably just old. It's a bunch of stuff. I yeah. mean, yeah. It, it's been a long time coming, basically. I agree. Just as the industry gets bigger, it's going to happen, because there's more money to, for people to spend, more they put into development. Yes. No, no, I didn't, I'm not saying Asbidae's not a big deal. Breaking news, folks. <laughs> no, no, I said I, we don't worry that, oh, Asbidae's taking over everything. Right. 
Okay, so the question is about the Asmodee new replacement part policy, which we were also talking about before the show. A lot of people are talking about it. Yeah, I just read an interesting thread on Reddit about this where somebody said that they bought a game from Asmodee um, and it was sitting on their shelf for a while. And they eventually opened the shrink wrap and found they were missing a sheet of counters. So they contacted Asmodee. Asmodee said, contact your store. So they contacted Miniature Market, which was the Miniature Market said, it's over 30 days old, so too late. Out of luck. They had another game where they were missing something or other. So they took it back to the local store that sold it to them. And the local store said, we never heard of this policy. We're not switching it out. So follow the dots. <laughs> I don't think it's going to change anything. All I know is that if it, it's if a bad experience to me as a consumer, it happens to me one time, I'm not buying another game from that company. Yeah. Will that hurt Asmodee? Probably not. You know, but no. In fact, several other companies, the question is, well, other companies follow suit. Several companies have very publicly said online, we're not going to do that because they want to look good. They're like, well, you can ask us for parts. <laughs> you can ask us for Asmodee parts. We got some in the back. Jamie Stegmeyer wrote about it. <laughs> Chris Sislik wrote about it. I mean, there was a lot of people who talked about it. Boniker will give you a part right now if you go ask him <laughs> out of his pocket. Totally random, pulled out of a box, but something. He'll take it from the library downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, ma'am. Okay, so this is a futuristic question about 2019 and 2020 games. We already gave her Wingspan. <laughs> yeah, from 2019, other than Wingspan, I'm not really seeing anything. I mean, no, not even Tainted Grail. Tainted Grail's neat, but I don't think it's there. 2020... Tainted Grail is a follow-up of Gloomhaven. It's another thing that's following yeah, on right. that. Yeah, right. So for 2020, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Um, there's always things that surprise us. Well, I'm sorry? Someone shouted something? The crew. I think the crew is cool. I love the crew, but the crew is definitely a follow-up on the mind, which I almost put on my list, by the way. I, yeah, it was also one of my first thoughts. I just had to keep going back to where it started. Yeah, yeah, Hanabi, Hanabi. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 that spiel-winning game. But the crew is trick-taking and cooperative, so that's why. Um, no. I, I mean, I think it looks neat, but it's just a mixture of other stuff. Yeah. Um, we really can't tell till the end of the I mean, year. It's, it's by its very nature. You can't anticipate guessing. these things. They, if, they're they're if designed. If we could, we'd be surprise. rich because I'd be like, <laughs> buy well, as many copies of that game well, as you can. Board game rich. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> there definitely is misconceptions in that regard. <laughs> Restoration games in general has been good for the hobby for sure, and bringing back games in general. Like I, you know, we talk about considering games. I considered. Um, the racing one, uh, Downforce, mm -hmm. just to, because, again, they're bringing back these older games. Wow, I didn't but, think of that. But Brass Birmingham is I still probably have. the best example yeah, yeah. of that. Oh, good. And good I, I considered that. that one, too. Yeah. All right. Wow. Yes? Okay, so you talked about companies kind of running the application integration. How much of that would you say is sort of influenced, not necessarily by companies doing that, but by fan culture? So say, like, Pacer, where the, the designer had the CD, but we had people outside Okay, so your question is, 
should we be giving credit to the fans who first started making some apps to do various tasks like shuffle the cards in Dominion and or put the Space Alert CD, since no one owns a CD player anymore, <laughs> you know, online. App, fans are always doing stuff, and definitely publishers get tips from them, but I wouldn't pick any of those. There's a big difference between a shuffler for Dominion and what Mansions of Madness does. I mean, I still don't know how Mansions of Madness does some of the stuff it does. It brings the game to life in a way that I have yet to see a game be brought. I mean, I don't get scared at playing Betrayal House on the Hill. Mansions of Madness makes you feel a little spooky. Yeah. Well, Dark Tower's not out yet. Oh, that's a piece of garbage. <laughs> Listen, that's nostalgia talking. No, it's just like Fire Island. The new Fire Island. It's okay. It's okay, Tom. Tom, it's okay. It's okay. It's going to be okay, Tom. (laughs) Run! Yes, sir. So the question is, how easy will it be to do a list of this over the next ten years? Yeah, basically, are we going to be able to come up with 10 big, important Oh, my word, I can make now? a top 10 list on anything. <laughs> I, no, I mean, we, not, not, that's not true. I mean, there's, we get ideas, but yeah, I love it. I mean, we could have, I mean, uh, me and Z did a, a series where we went through the decades, and I could do a 10 most influential games per year. Yeah. You know, I just, there's so many games that I come did, out I've now. got that list right here. Ten per year? You did a hundred? No, no, no. But I could have. I could have. And uh, yeah, I do think so. I, I think there's often an expectation that okay, well, it's the next Dominion or it's nothing. And I, I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think the the more mature our industry gets, it is more about evolution rather than revolution. But evolution is incredibly exciting. I don't know why anybody looks at that as a, a second cousin. I mean, there are so many cool things happening every year. There are. are Tons of really cool games. Sometimes they're just simple little tweaks that really blow open a mechanism. Sometimes they make you think how to play games completely differently. But I think they're going to still keep coming. We are such a baby industry. This industry is basically at the, oh, I hate to say it, the birth of a nation stage, uh, if you were to think about it in terms of cinematics. We've had a few big things. Uh, uh, please put aside the uh, cultural, uh, you know, racial issues. But just in terms of... You know, a birth of a nation. They study that in film school because it was such an important milestone in the the evolution I of the art of film. I think board games is that prehistoric here. Come oh, on, I now. think so. I do. I really do. I think we're still. I mean, that's why I draw attention to Pac-Man. We are in the Pac-Man stage of our industry. Actually, on this, I disagree. I think we live in a golden age. I think board games are here now. We're not at the beginning. We're in the middle of it. And I would say that the decade of ninety, uh, that the decade of two thousand to two thousand ten, was had bigger and more changes than 2010 and 2020. I, I would agree with that. I mean, but that's... Well, then, the, therefore, we're that, not in that is, that, that is the nature of it, because... We're the awkward teenagers now. Mm, I don't know. I, I think I, I'm still looking forward to a bit more time. I think there's still a lot well, sure, more... Sure, I am, too, but yeah, yeah, I, just, yeah. I don't think we're at the beginning. I think we're in the middle of it. Mm. Time will tell. Yes, sir. Okay, got it. So the question that we both deal with on a daily basis is, how long before the industry gets to the point where we can't follow everything? 2018. 
It's already happened. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I would have I would have gone back to 2012. It was a very good year, quite <laughs> well, frankly. Well, no, I mean, but we, we can't cover everything. And I tried for the longest time. I said, okay, we'll cover everything. I hired Z and Sam to cover the stuff I don't cover. Then I bought on other reviewers and said, cover that stuff. And now we just don't get to all of it. We try, and I, and I definitely read a ton. I feel like I know what's going on oftentimes. You can't keep up. I, so, and I don't so think why you try? should. Why, I, nobody expects to watch every single movie that comes out every year. Nobody expects to read every novel that comes out every year. There's a sickness among us that we feel like we have to play everything and forget about the stuff from two years ago because we have to play the new thing. It's okay. I agree. This comes into play. In fact, every year we do the Dice Tower Awards, and some people are like, look, I would love to be on the panel, but I haven't played all the games from last year. Then nobody will ever do awards. <laughs> it's just not possible at that point. And that, all the time, people say, well, did you play this game? No. And you know what? That's it. And I, I, it took me a while, and I'd say maybe in the last couple of years, I've just come to peace with that. There are just some things, some games I'm never going to play. Not even last year. There's several games that Z reviewed and played, and I will try to get to them at some point, but I'm not, that's okay if I don't. Yeah. I can't play all the games. Honestly, I am so lucky that I have this built-in filter. I only play games that play well with two. I only play games that don't feature... I mean, so I can ignore 60% of the industry right now, and that saves my bacon. Um, I don't know how you do it, being I such a voracious... Though, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, got, or how, I don't know how you ever did it. The Omni Gamer, it's just amazing to me. So my hat's off to you. That's what I was going to say. Yes, sir. Okay, so... This is a good question. How do we decide what we're going to cover? Yeah. You go first. I just said. Uh, well, I, I, no, uh, no, no. You do it a little bit differently than I do. Oh, really? Okay. Well, uh, basically, publishers contact me all the time. And I and they, well, you cover this game, this game, and this game. I say, send me the rules. I, I have to have read over 10,000 board game rules by this point. Um, I, and nine out of 10 that they send me, I read them. I say, no, this is not going to be a hit for us. Usually it's because it's easy for me to dismiss it because it does. But sometimes it's like, oh, this is a really terrible game. I still tell them, oh, I'm sorry, it's just not going to be a good fit for us. But the important. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely use that line. <laughs> it, 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 it's a, a really good. It covers game. everything. I'm not saying why it doesn't a good fit, but um, yeah. So I just say no nine times out of ten, and uh, the tenth one. When it comes to the door, and I have to do this, this is a self-preservation thing. A few years ago, my wife, an only gaming partner, said to me one day. I don't know. I don't feel like playing games today. I'm like, oh, the show's over. I, I, you know, I, I have to do something. And I realized it because I used to be a little bit more laissez-faire. I, oh, I'll try anything because I'm a games designer. I, I just love the study of it. Um, and I realized, not my gaming partner. If it's not fun, she's going to tune out, and, um, and then I'll have no one to play with. So I am just, I'm super strict. Everybody says I'm way too positive. That's because I do my diligence. I do my homework. And I just say no a lot. I break a lot of hearts. Um, no, I mean, really, I do. I mean, uh, you know, because I, I cover a lot of Kickstarter games, and I, I, and if, if I do a video, that helps move the needle. And I know that, but I have to say no because, oh my gosh, your game's a piece of crap, <laughs> or, or or any other number of reasons. So now you know if you got one of those emails, <laughs> your game is garbage. There is a there is a code. <laughs> I have a very specific code I use. Um, so for us, it just if it looks cool. Yeah. And I make no apologies for that. We get games all the time in the mail, so I would say at Dice Tower come 30 games a week, and that's probably accurate. That's a lot, right? That comes out to be well over 1,000 a year games show up. Uh, and when they show up, 
You open a box, you're like, ooh, that game will probably get reviewed. We open the box and we go, huh, <laughs> that game probably won't, but it might. And the game that looks awesome might not. But, and that's not fair, but you should have made your game look better. Yeah. You know, and that's just the way it is. And so it's, it's gut feeling more than anything else. It's, I, do I know the designer? Do I know the publisher? Do I know whatever, whatever? Does it look interesting? But not every game gets reviewed. And if you see Brian Drake's reviews, you're, he gets a box from me every once in a while. I'm like, hey, I'm going to send you a box of fun, which is a straight up lie. <laughs> and, and Brian's like, all right. And he's like, can I review some good games? I'm like, yep. Yeah. So he reviews some good games, and then he reviews those. And sometimes he's like, hey, that was a really good game you sent me. I was like, oh, okay. What about the other ones? He's like, well, that one was a really good game that you sent me. <laughs> so that, and that happens. And then every once in a while, we're like, you know what? That game's been on the shelf for a year and a half. It's never going to get reviewed. Yeah. Also, that company's out of business already. <laughs> yes, sir? Okay, so the question is, is Splendor kind of the engine building game or a game that got a lot of people in the engine building? No. Race for the Galaxy, Dominion, they're both engine building. San Juan. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dominion's especially. I mean, uh, people don't realize it. Deck builders are engine building games. They're just really crappy engines that you can't rely on. Is, uh, it's, am I wrong? That's a little engine. It never does what it's supposed to do. I keep putting all the good cards in. They come out all wrong. Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Baccarino. Yeah. But, um, but I, I do actually think Splendor is a great gateway to engine building. Uh, because usually engine building, it, it, it does require some heavy lifting. It requires deeper diving. Um, you know, and like I said, I drew parallels to Wingspan, because Wingspan is just a straight up, oh, three engines at once. Try to manage all that. Um, and Jamie was uh, brave enough to try and sell that to regular people instead of board game geeks, and it worked. You meant it kind of as a gateway type thing, though? I agree. No, I don't, I don't think Splendor was that impactful in that regard. I think that it just it hit pay dirt, but I think other, other people were doing the same thing at the same time. No, I, I, it didn't reinvent it. It's, it's not like yeah, it's, it's, not like it's it amazing It was in the right building. place at the right time, yeah. I think, for Splendor. That's my thing. And the poker chips. Yeah, and it's the poker chips pull people in, and then they say, well, yeah, this is pretty nice. I'd like to play another game like this. I, I do think it has that sort of impact. Same thing, I, I think this. And I love Emerson, and he's not here, so, but uh, Century... Great, great game that I think is even better than Splendor, but again, it was very similar to stuff that's come before. Yeah, yeah. But this year, Marvel Splendor, that's going to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> you watch. I cannot wait for those poker chips. <laughs> All right, we'll take a couple more, then we've got to let people go. Yes, sir. All right, so Seven Wonders Duel. Why did Ron? Why did Ronaldo not consider that? Uh, Seven Wonders two players better than Seven Wonders Duel. 
I'll let the internet handle that garbage. <laughs> Come at me. Uh, really? no, it's a, Seven Wonders Duel is a, is a great, great game. I don't think it necessarily revolutionized um, dueling. I mean, I think it builds on the shoulder of, you know, Cosmos's two-player line. I mean, it's, it's even yeah, practice the I same. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great I game. I think it's a great game. It's just not for us because I hate it. I love military in Seven Wonders in that it's just, oh, it's just to transfer points. I, but suddenly they turned it into, oh, I'm going to burn your place to the ground. And it's tug of war. It's not burning your yeah. place to the ground. I don't have to play a game that's all about me. Well, what happens when I push you all the way to the end? I, no, I get an instant win. But along the way, as, as I'm trying to get that instant win, I do destroy your stuff. Okay, there I was no that. destroying stuff, at least prior to Armada in Seven Wonders, which is why Seven Wonders will always have a place in my heart. Sure. All right. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah, dude. Where's that on your list? Okay, so that's an interesting thing. Yeah. So the question is about kids' games. Is there any of those games that made the list? And yeah. You mentioned My Little Side. What was the other one? To ride my first journey. Here's the deal. Kids' games are extremely fickle sales-wise. Mm. I don't care how good they are. Like I said, My Little Scythe was amazing. I said Ticket Ride First Journey is amazing. Both of them discount bins already. Um, I know, but it's the way it is, right? And so I'll push them, and I'll talk about them, and I'll say they're great. But very few kids' games. Mice and Mystics is the closest, mm. you know, because it was playable with families. Um, and there are games that work with kids. Rhino Hero, of all things. You know, stuff, because adults don't want to play games with kids that much. They want to play their games And with I guess kids. they're not necessarily being discerning consumers. Right? Sure, and it, just, it, it doesn't hurt when, well, I was about to say Toys R Us. Um, oh. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't help when you go to the store and they have all these garbage kids games that are really, really cheap. Yeah. And that have commercials that tell how really awesome they are. And so, and the kids will play them just as readily as my little scythe. Yeah, they will. I, my kids are the children of a vassal <laughs> of the dice tower, and they like garbage games. <laughs> I am consistently, I'll play a game with them, and I'm like, well, that was a bad game. And they're like, my daughter's like, nah, that was pretty good. I'm like, well, I won't be mentioning that in a review. <laughs> you apparently have no taste. <laughs> I will never forget, I got this game about Noah's Ark way back in the day. I played it with Melody and Amy, and it was a roll and move. And Melody was like, <laughs> I've never played a game like this where you roll the die, move around the board. Because I brought her up right to not even see those games. And then she saw it, she said, that was pretty cool. Dad, can we play more of those games? No. <laughs> So, but I'm telling you, it's funny. People ask all the time, will you review children's games more? And I said Dice Tower reviews more children's games than yeah. almost any other major review channel. They are consistently the least watched thing I put out. I'll still do it because I think it's important. People don't care. They buy garbage for their kids. They, they really do. My kids play Roblox. It's garbage. Okay? There are many better games. That, I'm sorry. There are many... <laughs> Sorry, kids. There are many better games out there, quality-wise, but kids just want to have fun, and they don't care about all the important things we do. Yeah. And so it's, it's really hard to make inroads. I'm going to get lynched by a mob yeah. of kids. <laughs> I think you can take them. It's okay. Yes, sir.
integration. Did you see a positive or negative trend in the way each account is traded when this app integration could lead to everybody put on your virtual reality and now we are not social as a table anymore? Okay, so the question is app integration, is that, could that be problematic for the future to the point where we're actually not interacting with each other, but we're interacting with our devices? No. 100% agree. Yeah. That is more of a straw man argument than anything else. Like you mentioned, we all put on our goggles, we're not interacting. That hasn't happened. Like, the thing I love about Chronicles of Crime, people are like, I don't want a phone at my table. And I'm like, but you're actually taking the phone from that guy who always texts, and you're using it for the game, and he's like, and you're like, I would love to let you text, but we're using your phone for this game. That's better. At at the end of the day, um, we've had digital chessboards since, what, the 60s or the 70s? People still go out and buy regular chessboards. People play with real chess pieces. People want to touch things. As a species, we are very tactile, um, you know, focused. And this will never replace that. This is just another component. This is just a set of dice. This is just some cardboard chips. It can just do a few fancy things that the other ones can't. Uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to a Ready Player One future where, or, or uh, uh, WALL-E where we're all just in our VR goggles. I mean, um, and uh, yeah, I, I would always rather look at this guy's face than a VR approximation of it when we sit down to play. <laughs> that's, that's the nicest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but, I, I, but I mean, I 100% agree on that. Not only that, video games move in that direction. My kids play Mario Party and Wii Sports and, and you know, the the switch where they're in the same room with other people. I mean, I really feel like that's moving the other direction. And I really think that a lot of the stuff where people don't want to bring phones to the table, that's perfect. That's, that's your prerogative. That's fine. Totally, you don't totally. Want to. I don't mean to... But a lot that. of it is Luddite behavior, frankly. And if you do that to kids and the teenagers and the millennials, you're turning them away from gaming. Because you're basically saying, yeah, the stuff you like, that's garbage. This cool, new, exciting stuff that would bring you in? No. Yeah, that's nonsense. Let's do it the way your grandpappy did it. Yeah. (laughs) Next year at Dice Star, everyone's getting a free iPad. No, that's not. (laughs) (laughs) Tim's not here, is he? All right. All right, one more question. Yes, ma'am. So the question is, when we're paid to do a review, uh, is it obligated to be more positive than not? You don't take money. You don't take that filthy lucre at all. Well, I'm never paid to do a review, yeah. ever. In fact, I did paid previews, I think, six years ago was the last one I did. But that was a preview, and I was super clear about it. Yeah. But I've never taken money to do a review. Um, the only thing that we have done paid playthroughs, and we'll act like we're having fun, which... <laughs> Which I would say 95% of the time we are. Because I'm going to have fun playing anything anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I won't take money for a review. And I feel there's a geek list on the, on the internet about games I've given negative reviews to. But I, I don't want to because I want the freedom to say something about a, a game if it's not good or not. Yeah. For the longest time, I was vehemently opposed to taking money for my videos. Because I come from the video game industry where there is a real issue with um, you know, reviews being bought and all of that. I mean, I, I've seen it firsthand for years and years and years. So I thought, I, I, I'm above all of that. And then I moved back to America. And then I had to start paying for health care. 
And then I realized, oh, well, maybe I need an additional revenue source. And so I have started doing um, Kickstarter previews. I'm very, very clear. I label them as previews, not reviews. I very much wanted to just say, hey, look, here's the game. I'm just going to show you to in as um, you know, an objective way as possible. But my viewers insisted, demanded that I still give my personal opinion. So all I can do is say, hey, folks, I was paid to make this video. I'm about to tell you what Jen and I thought of it. Please remember, I was paid. Just go watch the run-through itself. That's objective. And here's what I think. And um, I, because of my very, very strict vetting process, I'm very comfortable saying exactly what I think. Because if it was a crap game, it never would have made it to the table because I don't want to waste my wife's time. And that's basically uh, what it boils down to. Aw. Uh, not only that, I would say we're very fortunate in the industry. I don't even have publishers trying to do that. Mm. Um, publishers will try to ask for maybe a paid preview for a Kickstarter game, but I, I don't know. I, every once in a while, I get an email from a publisher who doesn't know much about the industry, and they'll go, how much does it cost for a review? And we're like, well, it's free. Yeah. Or sometimes they'll say, how much? The ones that throw me off is when they say, how much does a Dice Tower award cost? <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot of money. <laughs> and you know what, though? That's because there are places, especially in the toy industry, where you can buy an yeah. award. But no, it doesn't happen. Um, now, the, the, the bigger, more grandiose question, which we don't have time to get into necessarily tonight, is if a publisher says hi to you and is nice to you, or they give you promos for your Kickstarter, or whatever, how does that affect you? Relationships, yeah. Yeah, relationships. That's a much deeper thing, and you just have to dig deep in integrity, and um, you got you to call the shots. But I, the only thing I can do there is stand on our work. It, as a viewer, it's caveat emptor. You have to decide whether you trust us, whether we, yeah. whether we warrant that. Um, and I, I like to think we both have done our time, and um, yeah. <laughs> yeah! All righty. Well, the people here want to go back and play their games. Um, and some of us want to go to bed. Um, so we want to thank everybody here. We're about to turn the camera off. So if you're watching on our, on our channel, thank you so much. We'll see you guys next time. I'm Tom Vassell. Bye, everybody. And we'll see you next time. And okay, that's it, folks. Nothing more to hear here. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, bye bye